and welcome to today's episode of Inside Political Risk. I'm going to be talking with Kerry Boyd Anderson about the Arab Spring, why analysts missed the outbreak of the Arab Spring or whether they didn't miss it, but just failed to get their message across to the wider political risk world. Now, before we get into this, a brief refresher is probably in order in case you're not a Middle East expert or you weren't paying attention back in 2011. The Arab Spring started, by all accounts, in December of 2010. A street vendor in Tunisia immolated himself in protest of his cart being confiscated. This led to popular protests against the Tunisian regime, and the president, who had been in power for decades, eventually fled the country in the middle of January. Protests then spread across the Middle East, and it led to, among other things, the ouster of Mubarak in Egypt, Gaddafi in Libya, and the civil war in Syria. One big problem from a political risk perspective is that this was largely missed. The Stimson Center, a think tank in Washington, produced a report in May 2011 looking back on the Arab Spring, and they opened with this. Most experts we consulted said quite clearly that they did not predict the extent, the timing, the relatively low level of violence at the outset, and the spread of unrest in the region. They would not have expected to foretell the specific trigger, nor that the trigger would be Tunisia. So one of the largest events in recent geopolitics, largely missed by the political risk community. Kerry was a Middle East analyst at the time, dealing with all this firsthand and on a day-to-day basis. So I spoke with her about what the Arab Spring can tell us and what we can learn from the predictions that were made or missed almost a decade ago. Kerry, could you just give us a little bit about your background and how you found yourself uh, a Middle East analyst in the middle of the Arab Spring? Uh, so I studied international relations in the Middle East as an undergrad, did my research um, abroad in the region in 1999, came to D.C. in 2000, spent uh, three years at different uh, sort of think tanks and publications, then went over to London and got my master's degree in international relations at LSE. And then started working for Oxford Analytica, which of course is a political risk firm. Um, And so I was working for them and handling just about all of the advisory team's Middle East projects for a number of years. Um, And that's kind of where I was when the Arab Spring happened. So you kind of glossed over this, but you said you were a Middle East expert who came to D.C. in the year 2000. Yeah. And then... There was some very busy Middle East work in the years following that. So I know this is about the Arab Spring, but what was it like? Because this, I assume, was kind of the platform mentally for when you were later working on was that, you know, the start of your career was 9-11 and the Iraq War. So what was that like? I moved to D.C. in 2000, where I was a junior fellow with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, which at the time had no Middle East program. Um, which for anybody familiar with the D.C. think tank scene today will probably find surprising as they now have a robust Middle East program. But they had nothing on the Middle East at the time. So I ended up working um, in the program that was focused on migration issues. So I did that for a year. And then I got a job with uh, Global Security Newswire, which at the time was a brand new publication looking at arms control issues and Literally, I think it was the day I was supposed to start that job is when 9-11 happened. Um, and I was actually in um, 
I know I was supposed to start the next day because I was in Oregon. I was supposed to fly back from Portland on 9-11, which of course didn't end up happening. Um, so it ended up being like a week later that I started at this publication and then it switched to focusing on arms control and WMD and terrorism issues. So how does it, I mean, if the, if the United States on September 12th is now focused on Afghanistan and then in the years following on Iraq and the Middle East, how does it actually function? Like, you know, you, you mentioned there's now a robust think tank scene. Well, I mean, think tank fellows don't just emerge out of the ether. Like who, who were the people that were running Middle East policy if, as you say, there's not a lot of Middle East experts? Yeah, it was a real scramble for a lot of think tanks um, to set things up. There, there was one Middle East think tank at the time, but it was it had a very kind of pro-Israel perspective, um, and there was very little else. I mean, a few things here and there. So, both in think tanks and in government, one of the first things was ha- that happened was a whole bunch of analysts who had n- did not have a Middle East background were suddenly shunted over to Middle East work. So for example, I can think of a few experts in Africa who just started leading Middle East programs and setting up Middle East programs and think tanks. That also happened a lot in the intelligence agencies and at the State Department. Um, you know, in some cases, there were Russia experts who were moved over to the Middle East. So one problem for U.S. policy and broader... U.S. analysis in those initial years after 9-11 was a real lack of Middle East expertise, first of all. And then secondarily, in the run-up to the Iraq War, the Bush administration had a really negative attitude about what they called Arabists, which they meant in a very derogatory way. So if you were somebody who had regional expertise, they often... um, viewed that actually quite negatively. And in other words, if you were somebody who said, you know what, invading Iraq is maybe not a really great idea, or it might be really complicated, they just didn't want to hear that. And there's a great book by George Packer that uh, goes into that, uh, that run up to the, to the Iraq war and how Cheney's office, I believe it was the two people who had the plans for, if we were to invade Iraq, what do we do during the occupation? They had a big binder that was basically Iraq occupation plans. And he, his office sidelined them mm-hmm. because he thought they weren't committed to the idea of invading Iraq. So basically what you're describing is a, a, a world in which we don't have a lot of people with extensive training and the ones that we do have are being driven out for of their offices and position of responsibility for politicized reasons. Yeah, basically. Yeah, within, within D.C., that was absolutely true. Um, you know, within around academia, there was an awareness that we needed to very quickly have programs to look at the Middle East. So a lot of universities started setting up programs. So you started at least beginning to train some of the younger people, although many of those programs, again, there weren't a lot of senior people to lead them. And you, so you had a, a real training of a whole new crop of young people who within, you know, four years or so would start going into in the intelligence agencies and other positions in the government. Um, but many of them had no regional experience because there were very few programs to take people over to the region. And so it, it really was a huge scramble after 9-11. And I think by the time we got to the Arab Spring, that had still not completely settled out. Certainly by 2011, there was 
an improvement in the level of expertise people had, but it was primarily focused on terrorism, on Iraq, and, and to some extent on political Islam. And there was just an overall dearth of a nuanced understanding of multiple different factors in the region. And I think, yeah, that's something that often we don't really think about is how long it takes to train people. Yeah. Because if, if you go, if you think like, let's say you're a high school senior when the Iraq war happens. And so you're the class of 2003 for high school, 2007 for college. You're, you know, you might be really thinking this is the region I want to study and help, you know, the United States understand you're only graduating college by the time the surge happens. So we've basically gone through the most important parts of the Iraq war while you're still in college learning stuff, not to mention like getting it, getting a job, understanding the job, getting to a position where you can do something. So it, I mean, it sounds like it takes basically 10 years or so or more to actually get uh, the, the foreign policy establishment trained up in a region. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the other thing too is there was, you know, within within sort of four to eight years, there was a, a vast improvement in the number of people who spoke Arabic. So that was a good thing. Um, but many, many of the people, even by 2011, who were doing policy work, at least on the Middle East, um, often had little or no experience actually in the region, or if they did, they had been there specifically as part of the U.S. military or part of the State Department in Iraq. And so, and, and of course, you know, they probably got into the region because of 9-11. So there was very specific lens through which many of even the young people who we needed to train up, um, but it was still not a wide nuanced understanding of the region in many cases. I mean, of course, there there are some you know truly brilliant people who came up in that, that generation. Um, but if we're talking broadly about the people who are going into government or even to some extent into think tanks and academia, um, and, and certainly the political risk sector as well, um, you know, that, that was a real issue, at, at least within the United States. So before the Arab Spring, before 2010, what was the general consensus of people looking at the region? Was it, this is a powder keg that is about to explode and we're just waiting for it? Or was it, this is completely stable, nothing's going to change for the next 10 years? Yeah, I think it seems quite clear that across academia, certainly across the risk analysis business, um, within government, across most of the sectors studying the region, there was a a good understanding that there were really serious problems in the region. Um, I think everybody understood the the fuel that would eventually lead to the Arab Spring. So we understood that there were you know large scale unemployment, this this huge demographic factor, that people were tired of these ossified systems, that there were issues with their economic reform aspects, that in some cases like Egypt. There was a desire by uh, Hosni Mubarak to pass power onto his son Gamal, and that people didn't like that. So we knew that there were a bunch of factors. Um, I think the the real problem was when do you know that that fuel is going to spark? So, or you know, if we knew that things were kind of boiling, but was that going? To, was that pot going to boil over? If so, when? Or was it just going to kind of reduce to a simmer? So. I think people were, you know, that was a hard thing. Also, certainly within academia, at least, and to some extent, 
other areas. There was more of a focus on um, the durability of authoritarianism and more of a focus on why these institutions had lasted so long, um, despite problems and despite their failures. So it's almost, it's like if you're asking a, an academic to explain the durability, they will go and they will find all the causes for the durability. If you asked a risk analyst to explain the vulnerability, they will go and find all the reasons why they're vulnerable. And you'll have the same institution analyzed as this thing is really durable for all these reasons and it's a solid argument, or this thing is really vulnerable for all these reasons. And again, completely solid argument that are just talking past each other. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great summary. And when did when did you see that the spark had been lit? I think the the key point is at what point did people realize that this thing could really spread? And that's where you get into some real differences over how the analytical community handled things. So for example, I remember, and I can't remember if actually if this happened before or after Ben Ali left, but at some point and everything in Tunisia before the protest started in, in Egypt, I remember sending an email to a colleague and saying, look, I think we really, really need to look at whether what's happening in Tunisia could spread to Egypt. Um, and getting an answer back that was basically like, well, countries are different, which was so frustrating because I was like, of course, I know that the countries are different. Also, there are regional links and things, and there's a common Arab identity. And there is an ability for things to spread. And I think that's where you get a lot of the differences within the analytical community at that point is some people saying, hey, this could really spread. And other people saying, oh, no, 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 it'll just stay to Tunisia. Yeah, because Tunisia is, in many ways, it could be, it could be seen to be isolated. It's a, it's a small country. It was between Libya and Algeria. So it wasn't directly connected to Egypt. So I could definitely see the argument of, you know, the risk analyst who's seen this a million times before, they've seen protests in each country. Yes. And every single time the protest starts and either it gets, you know, squashed by the government or the government does minimal uh, concessions and then it goes away. And, you know, you've, you've seen it a million times and it never happens. And this is the time where it does happen. And so you just dismiss it right away. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think that's that was especially true for... A lot of the the older or more senior analysts, people who had been studying the region for years, they had seen this time and time again, right? Like you were just saying, protests, people are angry, regime manages it, back to you know, the starting point. Um, and they were really focused on the idea of authoritarian durability. And they had good reason to focus on that. And as the rollback of the Arab Spring demonstrated they weren't totally wrong either, but they were missing the other side of that picture. And in my experience at the time, you had younger analysts, of course, tended to be more junior positions who had experience of the region where they were interacting more with that younger generation that was actually going to be the ones driving the change. And so you had younger people who perhaps being younger were more open to the idea of change in general, but also were interacting with these younger people. And you had younger analysts in some cases saying, hey, I think this 
could be really big or this, this might do this big thing. And often you had older analysts just say, oh, no, 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 no. Like we've seen this before, or it'll just stick to this country. Um, and as it panned out, both of those perspectives ended up being important because change did happen and change is happening and it could still happen. Also, some of those regimes proved to be very durable even after the Arab Spring. Because it, it's an interesting kind of analytical question. You basically have an equation where on one side of it is young um, mass movement protests. And it's really hard to get in there to to know people who are just going to spontaneously go to Tahrir Square. And on the other side of the equation are the old elites, the establishment, the army. And, and you can't – It's I am assuming – correct me if I'm wrong – it's probably hard to get sources in both camps. You know, it's hard to be an outside analyst that comes in and one day goes into the military and the other day goes into a youth movement and just easily gets information from both sources. Yeah, especially the ones who ended up being critical. So we definitely had quite a lot of senior analysts who had really good contacts in government and maybe senior um, business people in the region. And so there was pretty good perspectives on what the government people were thinking, what some of the other senior figures in society were thinking. But a lot of those people were focusing on them and on the institutions and not on this younger generation of young guys hanging out at the coffee shop being angry. Um, you know, but then you had younger analysts who were maybe had gone to the region. There weren't very many of them. I mean, back to our earlier point, that's another issue. But there were people like me who had you know, been in the position of hanging out in that coffee shop, talking to those young men and women, hearing what they were saying. And so you, and those two sides of the analytical community weren't really talking to each other very well. And I think the senior ones just tend to be more dismissive of younger people's perspectives and experiences, and that's part of it. But also, you make a really good point that there, for example, in a couple of the countries, the military ended up being really essential in what happened. And I think in a lot of cases, people just did not really understand well what was happening within those institutions. So while the Arab Spring is going on, so let's it's either just before Mubarak has fallen or just after, when we're in what we could define as like the absolute height of it, what was it like working in that environment? Was it just every day? something new happens, you have to scramble to figure out what it means? It was just constant because everybody wants your, you know, your clients want to know what's going on. How does this affect my interests? If you're working in government, obviously you have constant things you're trying to sort out. Um, academia is obviously a different environment, but I think for those of us who are working in the NGO space or government space or the risk analysis space, it was constant. And this is also maybe a good point about analysts or people. I had a baby who did not choose to sleep through the night at the time. <laughs> so I was like trying to deal with all of this stuff going on, all the stuff at work and then coming home and not sleeping. And you just sometimes don't have that time to pause and think about what adjustments do we need to make in our analytical approach? Because you're just dealing with this on a day-to-day -day basis. I was doing daily analysis uh, when ISIS 
emerged and started mm-hmm. taking over territory. And you're right. You kind of had this – you were at this status quo and you're like, this is where we are. This is the risk. There's This is what's going to happen, you know, the most likely scenario. And then all of a sudden you'd be like, oh, Mosul just fell to ISIS. Well, no one expected that and the Iraqi army is in retreat and what does it mean? And then you kind of scramble and you scramble and you read everything and you talk to people and you make your prediction and then it kind of would calm down for like a while and you get to this new status quo, but then something else might take over. So, you know, when I was doing, I do kind of the U.S. response to ISIS for a while, but then there might be uh, a piece of legislation that I need to analyze and there'd be an election I have to analyze and then, oh my God, ISIS is back. Mm-hmm. And it it definitely, I can't imagine what it was like in the Arab Spring because it would be that times a hundred. You're just, there's 18 balls in the air and uh, and you're just constantly juggling and the second you get a moment to really study one in depth, some other country is now having massive protests. Yeah, yeah. It's and I think you know the, the example you gave about ISIS is, is a really good one as well. When these things are happening, it's you're just trying to keep on top of it and failing, right? Because it's constantly changing, yeah. um, and it makes it really, really hard to to pause and try to see the big picture. And I think as analysts, we we need to try to do that, but. The reality is, especially if you don't have a lot of people with the right type of expertise on that topic, it is just a constant go, 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 go until, you know, whenever. It still feels like that. It always feels like that. At what point did you feel like this had kind of settled into a new normal that you could, you weren't scrambling all the time? And at what point did you kind of say to yourself, oh, I guess the Arab Spring is done? It was interesting to me having a look back at the Stimson Center report that came out in May of 2011. And I was just like, oh my gosh, we were looking at this stuff when it was still so new. Um, I remember being in a workshop, I think it was late 2011. And we were talking about the way that the Arab Spring had been a real blow to Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda's ideology. And I remember writing up the report from the workshop and saying, okay, so the Arab Spring has been bad for Al-Qaeda, but what happens if the Arab Spring gets rolled back? Which, of course, in many ways it did. Yeah. And I think there, there was sort of, so by late 2011, maybe somewhere in 2012, maybe more kind of 2012, there was a sort of sense that this was kind of over, but then we saw the Syrian civil war, um, which the, the protests started in 2011. I think the civil war really got going in early 2012. And then there was the, the rollback. Uh, I think that was more 2013 in Egypt. So it was kind of like 2011 and 2012 were really intense, but then it sort of settled into whatever it was going to be now with kind of rollbacks and stuff, except for, of course, the Syrian civil war, which then you know, really burst up. How does that shape your job as an analyst that you do? You're basically seeing five you know, or more historical episodes happening simultaneously, but at different 
phases where one is at the start of it and the other one's at the end of it? And does it make it difficult to kind of go back and forth and just remember, okay, now I'm dealing with Egypt. Here's where they are. Here's where they have been. And this is what I think the time frame is. And, and then jump to Syria and then jump to, to Yemen. Yeah, I think it does make it difficult. I also kind of think, you know, as analysts, our job is to make space for that type of nuance. And one has to be able to recognize that each country is different. It has its own conditions and its own cultures and governmental structures and histories, while also recognizing that all of the things within the region are interconnected. Even, for example, people often will sort of break out the Arab world versus other things. But what's been happening in Iran with the protests we saw there in the fall of 2019 that's also connected very much to what was happening in Iraq and in Lebanon. And all of these things are interconnected. I think we just have to be able to make space for the differences between those countries while also recognizing that this world and this region are deeply connected. I think especially with protests today, to a lesser extent, but there are even connections between the protests happening in a place like Hong Kong or in Chile, along with protests happening in the Middle East as protesters use social media and learn from each other. And, and governments, of course, are also learning from each other and how to oppress this stuff too. And all of that is just there together. And we have to find ways as analysts, I think, to see that while also figuring out what we've got to focus on. Do you think that the analytical community and, and define that however however you want? Do you think that it's learned from the Arab Spring? Do you think it's it's taken lessons from it and incorporated it and is now better for it, or do you think that we're still at risk of making the same mistakes we did in 2010 when people said this thing in Tunisia is not going to spread? I don't think we've learned a lot of lessons, and I think that's partly just because of the reality that we're constantly having to deal with what's happening next. Um, and I think also it's just, it's so challenging to understand where is the tipping point when we know that something is unstable. So for example, I would make the argument, there are people who disagree with me, but I would make the argument right now that Egypt is pretty much as unstable today as it was in 2010. But Sisi could survive for another 10 years or he could fall next week. And that, and like what would push that tipping point over is I think what's really hard to recognize. And I, I might be missing things, but I don't feel like we've really figured out how to do that better. Was there a lesson from the Arab Spring just about political risk in the most general and, and abstract sense that you, you saw and that you think still resonates out there? Yeah, I think the Arab Spring really demonstrated why businesses and governments need political risk analysis. While it's true that people weren't able to predict the precise way in which the Arab Spring would go down, people did know what the risks were and were clear about that. And I think it's very, it really demonstrated that if you're a business or a government with interests in a foreign country, you need to be looking at the broad risks that could happen. And just because, say, if you had had interests in Egypt and Egypt had been fine for 
decades doesn't mean that you're always going to be okay. So I do think that in terms of making the argument for why businesses need political risk analysis, the Arab Spring made that argument really clear. And do you think that people are still kind of fighting the last war in a sense that we're still, um, you know, because of the Arab Spring, we're now focused on the instability of these institutions and that the next geopolitical crisis that hits will be something different that we're, that we're not seeing? Or do you think that this is a region where it's very clear where the risks are and we're not worried about the next one coming over the horizon? I think with the Middle East, the reality is that all the risks that existed in 2010 are still there today, but worse. Well, that is a very depressing note to end on. Um, <laughs> but uh, that's that's the region. And that's the reality. Uh, so, Carrie, thank you so much for this. Um, how can people get in touch with you? How can they hire you for these insights? Um, and where could we read uh, some more of your thoughts? Uh, well, thank you. Um, well, I write weekly articles for Arab News, so you can find my articles there. Um, I'm also on Twitter at KBA Research, um, on LinkedIn, all the usual places. Uh, so, yeah, thank you so much for the conversation. I always enjoy talking about risk analysis with you. Um, I think it's a, be a really interesting podcast. I want to thank Carrie for her time in speaking today. It's, I mean, it's really fascinating on a number of fronts. But the one thing that stood out to me, the one kind of anecdote that jumped out, was how she was dealing with the Arab Spring during the day and then going home to a newborn at night. You know, I find myself when I talk about political risk occasionally treating it as if it's this faceless entity that's just out there in the world making predictions. But it's an industry made up of people who are trying to deal with completely uncertain politics as well as everything else that's going on with their lives. And at times, and I think the Arab Spring is definitely one of them, you have a very basic problem of there's only 24 hours in a day and there is way more than 24 hours of things happening in the world. I think that wasn't the only factor in the average spring, but it certainly was really important as it was going on. And also the fact that the analytical community was still catching up to the Middle East nearly 10 years after 9-11. It really shows how disconnected personnel management can be from politics. You know, politics can change in a, a day and the ability for the analytical community to catch up with that change can be almost a decade. And I, I don't really have many conclusions other than the fact that we should probably be constantly be preparing for what might be important in a few years and not just spend our resources either in an organization or in government or as a country chasing trends and whatever the latest trend is. Anyway, that's all for now. Please subscribe, recommend, rate the podcast five stars wherever you get it. It is a huge help for the show. It's probably one of the biggest things you could do to help a podcast. Talk to you next time. Bye.